Welcome to the Neighborhood Church Podcast. We are so thankful that you are listening in. The Neighborhood Church is all about helping people find and follow Jesus. We hope that through these podcasts you are encouraged, that you're inspired, and that you're provided with practical wisdom on how to find and follow Jesus. We hope that you enjoy today's podcast. So, we are on message number three of Unfinished in the book of Acts. So we are going to be in Acts 2, 37, all the way to 3, 1 to 10. So I want to give you a little bit of review of what we've done the last couple weeks, okay? Because when we're done this series, we would have gone through the entire book of Acts, right? So the first week, Pastor John emphasized four words If you're listening in online right now, let's see who can write them the fastest. What were those four words? Power, spirit, witnesses, and everywhere, which is a message for each and every one of us. So in Acts chapter one, Jesus ascends into heaven. It's awesome. Everyone gets to see him rise up into the clouds and they're told the Holy Spirit is going to come on you and you're gonna do this in my name. And so they waited. Forgot I was allowed to take my mask off that'll be a little bit more easier to communicate. (laughs) Um, And so they waited for the Holy Spirit. So then Pastor Jordan told us, took us to chapter two in Acts. And 120 of them were waiting in the upper room and they were praying. And all of a sudden, on the day of Pentecost, when hundreds of thousands of Jews are coming from all over the place to celebrate, The Holy Spirit sets tongues of fire on these apostles and they begin to speak in tongues and everyone around them starts hearing them in other languages and different dialects. And it's just this beautiful eruption of the Holy Spirit. And then Pastor Jordan challenged us and reminded us that with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can help plant these seeds. We need to show actions, right, and words about the love of Jesus. And it's God's job to actually do the growing, which in my group this week, in my neighborhood group, this is what really took pressure off of them when we were talking about it. Because it said that they were all talking about how they think they have to change everybody. But the thing is, it's not our job to change them. It's our job to point them to where the change is gonna happen, right? That's that's our job. And it was good stuff and he challenged us. And so Peter now, after that eruption of the Holy Spirit, has now come up and he's about to start preaching. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit, so we didn't get to go through that in much detail, but I want you to know where we're landing. So he does this sermon, we're coming towards the end of that sermon, and that's where I'm picking up. So Acts chapter two, verse 37, we're gonna get there in a minute. Um, Last month, I talked about fear. And one of the biggest fears is the fear of failure. And most everybody actually experiences this fear. There's no way you haven't because we've all failed at something. And one of the most common forms of dreams that are out there is called an anxiety dream. And you're so, for example, you're taking a test. I'm sure we've all had these types of dreams and you fail the test, right? Or you're in front of a crowd of people. You have to deliver a speech. Most people don't like that and they sweat and they get nervous and they're scared. All of us have had fear at some point, like this type of fear. And yet, wouldn't you all agree with me that failure is probably one of the most common things 
about us. It's built into humanity. We are born sinners separated from God. We need redemption. So it's built into who we are. And really the most, like, most common thing. Because if you think about it, we all have a long history of failing. Um, I do and you do. Talk about right from when you're a child and it's your very first steps, right? You're trying to walk. Well, you usually fall down, right? You fail. I remember my first time skating. Not a good experience. I failed. <laughs> also not a good experience the first time I tried to hit a ball with a baseball bat. I failed, not a very good experience. None of us got straight A's off of the bat, and chances are we've probably let somebody down in our lives in some shape or form. So we failed, and the book of James in chapter three says, we all stumble in many things. And this is probably not a Bible verse that you've underlined or highlighted or put on a coffee cup, but it's there. We all stumble in many things. That's just part of human nature. And at the same time, that doesn't take the sting away from our failures. So Peter, who we're reading in this scripture, Peter struggled with failure, spiritual failure. Jesus actually told Peter that he would fail, that he would deny him three times. And the last time that Peter denied Jesus, Luke told us that Jesus looked at Peter and then Peter went out and wept bitterly. But at the same time, Peter's failure was this great hinge in his life, this pivot point of this greater usability. Jesus told him he would be used again. Jesus predicted that he would be strengthened again. He would be restored. So now we're reading about that same Peter, that failure who preaches the first sermon. He will also be one of the ones who leads the first Gentile to Christ, Cornelius. He'll oversee the work and the spread of the gospel up into Samaria. We all have failure, but failure is something the Lord can use to make us more effective in the future. And so we're landing in this scripture now where Peter's giving this sermon. And we would be looking at this sermon if you didn't know his history, which is why I'm bringing it up. If you were to just look at the sermon, you'd think, wow, this guy's like pretty good. He's well-trained, um, but we're forgetting that he was that same man, that same fisherman from Galilee who struggled and who failed. But when we read him here, he's so articulate. He's very knowledgeable. He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes the book of Joel and Psalms. And we get to see, which is this is the exciting part, what the Holy Spirit can empower us to do. So after that, this is where we are. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So that's conviction. They were convicted by the Lord convicted of their sins, and said, Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall I do? And then Peter answers. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. So Peter's giving a sermon, sort of like what I'm doing. He's preaching the gospel and he's doing it quite well. But then he makes an application. See, the goal is never information. And I need all of you to hear that today. It's never just information. We are looking for transformation. 
That's the goal. I can give you as much information as you want. Transformation is the goal. He wants this to occur. So what does he say? Repent and be baptized. Notice the order. He didn't say baptize, then repent. He said repentance first. So many of you might be saying, what is repentance? What does that mean? Well, repentance is confessing one's actions or regrets, but see, it accompanies a commitment of actual action, right? It's not just saying sorry and doing it again. It's saying sorry and actually committing to a next step, like a next action. And then he says, be baptized. Why do you want to get baptized? People ask us that all the time. Um, It's an outward sign of an inward change. That's the best way that I can put it. It's demonstrating that by being baptized. And if you're somebody that's listening right now and you have not been baptized, I just want to let you know I would love to talk about that with you. I would love to walk you through that. And so if you're interested in that, just please fill out the connection card, whether it's after the sermon's over or whatever. But I just want you to know we can talk through that, talk about it more deeper and what it means. So So for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, they just saw and heard a mighty works and evidence of the Holy Spirit, the birthday of the church. This is the birth of the church, this day, right? They hear this rushing wind, they absorb the speaking of different languages, they're wondering what it is. Some thought they were drunk, Peter said, no, that's not the case, and then he preached the gospel. He told them that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, so then now watch this, right? So concerning the promise of the Holy Spirit, Verse 39, for the promise is to you, to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. I love that verse. Because if you call on the Lord today, like today, right now, that promise is also for you. As you call on the Lord, that same empowerment is available to you today. So verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved for this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now that must've been a really long baptism service, okay? Because we've had some pretty spectacular weekend services here, but 3,000? Those apostles, those leaders, they must have been exhausted, right? Um, And there's an interesting note that I just want to say, because I found this in my studies, that I need to investigate a little bit more. But it's interesting to note that on the day Moses came up from the mountain, so we're talking when everyone was worshiping the golden calf in Exodus, 3,000 people were killed. But on the day that the church was established... 3,000 people were saved. The law of Moses was a law of spiritual death because nobody could keep it perfectly, right? But the law of Christ is a law of life because it provides for the forgiveness of our sins. And there are so many interesting parallels between the two stories. So neighborhood groups, do some digging because it would be really interesting to see what you come up with. But both were on the day of Pentecost, Really cool, very interesting. So law, death, gospel, life. 
Anyways, moving on. So this next section here that I'm about to read about the early church, I won't promise that I don't cry. This is the most captivating snapshot that we get in scripture for me, okay? Like this is what it's all about for me. It moves me, it stirs me, and I want this for our church and I want this for our groups. Like it moves me to tears. Like anyway, especially when I use so much of my time and my energy and my life and my gifts to continue this particular story. It's something that's just truly remarkable to me and I just love that I get to share it today. So verse 42, the church is born. Let's see what they're doing. And they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and a simplicity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So there's a lot going on in those verses, but there's four things, four marks of the early church that I want to point out. If we're getting a snapshot of what the very first church was like, I think we need to look at these verses a little bit more closely. So in verse 42, we kind of get this list, this table of contents of what were the effects of the infilling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit on a community of faith. What does it look like for the community of faith? This group of people who have responded to the gospel message have been filled with the Holy Spirit. What evidences are now demonstrated in the early church? So these were their priorities. We're going to go through them. So they continued steadfastly. Number one, they were a learning church. It says the apostles' doctrine. So we learn right away that they're a learning church. And the word doctrine is one of those words that I feel really sorry for. Because when you read it anywhere, especially in the Bible and to do with the Bible, um, people just don't like that word, right? And I've heard many believers say things like, you know, it's not about doctrine. It's not about knowing doctrine. It's all about love and Jesus, man. And I'm not into knowing doctrine. I'm just going to love Jesus. And it's like they sound like they're like a spiritual cut above us all, right? You're not into instruction, What a sad, sad thing to say, because it's like saying, I'm not into good Bible teaching. I'm not into the truth, right? Um, I just want to love Jesus and nothing else, right? Well, how on earth will you love him unless you are given good instruction on who he is and how to do it? And I press this because we live in a day and age where Bible doctrine isn't even tolerated, even within Christians. Bible teaching is like come down to people going to church, wanting a pep rally. Worship, feeling really good about worship, fill them with an inspirational message, and then they're good for the week. But see, this community, they devoted themselves This was like serious persistence, not half-hearted efforts. It was a persistent devotion to something. It was devotion to those who Jesus appointed, his apostles. 
So my first point, the mark of the early church is they were a learning church. I could say lots more, but we got lots to go through. So number two, they're a loving church. They're about community and about fellowship. Notice the word fellowship, and many of you, this is one that most people know in Greek, is koinonia, and it's sharing something with someone or sharing with someone something that you have. So participation, joint participation in something. So here's something I have, and I'm going to share it with you. Or I'm going to do this activity, and you're going to come with me. It's fellowship. So they loved one another. And fellowship is not something you can do alone. Like, thank goodness for online. Okay, I know what the world is all doing right now. But you cannot say, oh, I'm going to go onto my podcast at home and have some fellowship. You know, like, me and my computer, man, we're going to fellowship tonight. Right? Like, I love the computer age. I love that we can do this. I love podcasts, but that's impossible, right? And I know we can show up live online and we can build a community and that helps. We can talk and we can feel like we're sort of together, right? But you can't have a rich relationship with Christ without the body of Christ. You have to have fellowship. That's why neighborhood groups are so important, especially right now. You may be able to go fast alone, but together we can go far. And it's something to think about. So what do I say to the person who says, well, it's just me and Jesus and my Bible. Me, Jesus, coffee, and the lake. Maybe it's even me, you, Jesus, and your household. I don't need anybody else. You and I, by ourselves, do not have the ability to experience and bear full witness to Jesus Christ. You and I, by ourselves, do not have that ability. You and I, by ourselves, at best, are an ear, or an eye, or a foot. Together, we are the body of Christ, the body of Jesus. We express Jesus fully together as a body of Christ. Therefore, you and I or others, if they're going to experience it and bear full witness to who Jesus is and fully know who he is, that requires we experience Jesus in the context of the body, of community and fellowship. So that's why the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Yes, we come to Jesus personally, and I remember that experience. It was very personal. But as you experience growth in him, we express outwardly, outwardly in the context of community, corporately coming together. And it's also important that we share ourselves, that we know others, and that we are known. And you might be thinking, well, how am I supposed to know 3,000 people that are being added to this kingdom? Well, you won't. You would never know that many people. But you see, it says that they get to know them, they would get to know each other in their homes because they were meeting in homes, right? So as we see here in the scripture, it says, and then they met in their homes. It's the same culture here at the neighborhood church. So when things are kind of normal, a little bit more normal, we would meet on the weekends, we would gather, and then we scatter into our homes. 
We don't all have to know each other or be known by everyone. The goal is that you're known by someone. That's the goal. We are Christians, if we are believers, fellowship is important. They devoted themselves to fellowship. You can't do it alone. You need other people to enrich your life. So they were a loving church. Number three, they were a worshiping church, a praising church. Notice what it says, and in the breaking of the bread and in prayers, so breaking bread and sharing communion together, praying together, those are exercises of praise and worship. And then further down in 47, it says praising God and having favor with all people. So they were, pra- they were a praising church. Now, when you think of praise and worship, you may think of the band. And that's fine. Praise can be done with music, but it can also be done in giving, in prayer, in a common meal together, fellowship together. Worship can be formal, it can be informal, it can be in the church, it can be in your home. Could you imagine if that was in your groups? Being in this awe and reverence, it can be in quiet, it can be loud. See, worship is birthed out of what they knew. So I can't help but think that they responded in worship out of their devotion to the teaching. And you see, you can't love and worship what you don't know. That's why we have a worship worship response at the end of the message, so we can respond to his word. Not to me, to his word and what he's saying to you. Respond to his teaching. And something neat here is when they're talking about breaking of bread, which is not just confined to the communion elements that we're going to take today. They shared what was called a love feast, an agape feast, and it included the Lord's Supper, but it also included bringing food together and sharing a common meal. So like picture like a potluck, right? You all bring stuff and you all eat together, but they would start by breaking the bread and doing the communion elements first. Christ himself Right? He, was known by his, he was known to his disciples, and he taught them at the meal table. This is part of fellowship, was a sit-down meal that included taking those elements. So hopefully, once we get through regulations and all of this stuff that's going on, this could happen in your groups. It's such a beautiful picture that I can just see in my head of like what our groups could look like, like house-to-house house breaking bread together, like something you could do with your families and your kids and your home. It doesn't have to be limited to a service. It's part of worship, which I think is fantastic because it actually combines the worship of God with the fellowship of the body of Christ. It's like a two-for-one deal. So verse, verse 43, it said, Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. So same idea of fellowship. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among anyone who had need. So maybe you could say they were a lavish church, a generous church. They pooled their resources together, they, you know, they, and they wanted to do this. They weren't forced to do this. Um, And then verse 47, it says, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, how did they do that? How did they add to the church daily? Do you think it just mysteriously happened? I mean, maybe there was some of that, 
But did the believers just sit around doing nothing and the unbelievers just kept flooding in the doors? Maybe, but I don't think so. I believe it was a mission church. It was evangelism, right? I believe, so number four, it was a mission church. I believe that they shared the gospel, they gave witness by their love for each other, but also their words. The power of the Holy Spirit to the people in Jerusalem, so you might even say that they were a growing church. Because the Lord added daily to those who were being saved. They reproduced other believers by their evangelism and by the Lord's favor when the Holy Spirit poured out. So the Lord added daily to those being saved. Now, why that moves me, which I know I say that a lot, but just like scripture just moves me. I just can't help it. I just get emotional. But the reason why this one does, this Acts 2 church, this is the part that captures me. Every single day, people found a new life in Jesus. Like, there's that one song, I can't remember what it's called, I talked about it at Sister Learn Live, and it says, I was alive, I was breathing but not alive. Do you remember when you came alive in Jesus? Like, do you remember that? Every day someone found new life. Like, that moves me, and I'm asking you, I'm asking all of you to be a part of that. Ask God to point you in the direction of someone to talk to. Ask God to use you to bring someone to Christ. I want you to know that I have a long list of family and friends who aren't Christians, who I care about deeply. When I worship, I think about them. When I do the word, I think about them. When I'm in my car, I think about them. But they're not projects. These people are not projects. They are my friends and they're my family. And some are hurting and they're messing up all over the place. But some of them who aren't Christians might be the most generous, loving, kind people I know. And it's sad to say some of them could probably run circles around some Christians. And I don't say that to make you feel bad. I say that because could you imagine what would happen if they're already that amazing if the Spirit got a hold of them? Every single day, someone came to life. Like, wow. So who are members of Christ? Who are true members of the body of Christ? Well, those who are saved by Jesus. And any spirit-filled, gospel-centered, Jesus-exalting ministry will be driven out by the Spirit on a mission. So those are the four marks of the early church. Teaching or learning, loving church, community, worship, praising, and missions. But as somebody reminded me this week that those are great seconds, but they make lousy firsts. Well, what do you mean by that? I've known a lot of people who love the teaching of Jesus more than they love Jesus. I know lots of people who love worshiping Jesus more than they love Jesus. They love the community of of believers more than they love Jesus. Some even like the pro, like, like love the proclamation of Jesus more than they love Jesus. So what needs to be first? Our love for Jesus. We need to keep Jesus first, return to our first love, and then all these other things need to flow out of our love for Jesus. So yes, finally, we finished chapter two. <laughs> 
and we're gonna head into chapter three. So we ended chapter two, and you're seeing this beautiful community of believers coming together, right? So now we're in chapter three. So what is chapter three to chapter two? Well, chapter three is now zooming in on one of those days. So one of those days that they're going to the temple, one of those days that the apostles are doing miracles, one of those days that they're gonna pray together. So why highlight this miracle? Because there's lots of miracles going on. But see, this miracle is the start. It's the first miracle that's going to bring persecution to the church. Trouble, tribulation to the church. Up until this point, things are great. They are selling everything, they're giving each other everything, they're hugging it out, adding to the kingdom daily, like excitement stage, growing stage. Things are good with the church up until now. And this miracle is the beginning of persecution that Jesus said would come. So the reason I tell you that is that this miracle is going to create controversy. People will be arrested. All of these things are going to come out in this miracle in the chapters going ahead. So now here we are, first recorded miracle performed by an apostle. So it generalized it in chapter two, saying many signs and wonders being done, but this is the first described and recorded miracle. So I just wanna say one thing about miracles, because, I mean, miracles we could talk about for the whole night, but just, just a quick thing. Please don't overuse the word miracle. As someone who wasn't a believer and now is, Our God is so big and so powerful. Others need to see that. And I fear sometimes we're just a little too generous for good reasons, right? Because we're so grateful for everything and everything is so great. But I hate to say this, but a baby being born, when we say it's such a miracle, no, it's not. The sun rising, the sun setting, not miracles. Are they beautiful? Oh, yeah but they're actually part of natural law. And I believe the greatest miracle takes place in a church when a heart of stone turns to a heart of flesh. A miracle is different than something that's awesome and beautiful. A miracle is humanly impossible, but divinely simple. Okay, so you have these natural laws. We have natural order. A miracle is when God decides to supersede those natural laws with his own law. Which for him isn't this wow moment for us. It's like, hmm, easy peasy. No effort. So when God enacts a supernatural law in the midst of a natural law, and yes, these are apostles, but Jesus had said, these will follow those who believe, and they will perform signs and miracles in his name. So this is the fulfillment of that verse. So chapter three, verse one. This part's shorter, so if you're, if you're drifting off, <laughs> be patient with me. <laughs> um, this is Bible teaching. Like, there was nothing else I could do but just go through it, so... So now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So that's three in the afternoon. So Luke, the writer, is using Jewish reckoning time here. So they're going up at three in the afternoon. A certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. So Beautiful is the name of the gate. To ask alms for those who entered the temple. So just a little word about the gate, because I did some searching. 
Um, it is believed that, according to a historian Josephus, that the beautiful gate was named because it was more elaborate than even those covered in gold and silver. Like it was just the most beautiful gate. It was 75 feet tall and made of Corinthian brass. It was beautiful. And this gate separated the court of the men to the court of the women, because that's what they did then. So there is this huge, huge gate, 75 feet tall, then like 15 steps would go down to the lower court to where the women were, and that's where he laid every single day. Now he was lame from birth, so it's not like he used to walk, and now he's lame. All he's ever known is the inability to walk. So all of his joys of childhood have been taken away. Why am I drawing this out? Because I want to point something out that I can't totally prove, but Jesus, well, in some ways, Jesus visited the temple and he went through those gates. So it says this man was laying there every single day at the gate. So there's a good chance that Jesus passed him a few times. Did you get my drift? Jesus didn't heal him. I want you to understand that Jesus didn't heal everyone. In fact, in the book of John, when Jesus was at the pool of Bethesda, he healed one. Yet scripture says there were multitudes of sick people laying there. What about them? What about their needs? What about their pain? We need to understand that healing is a sovereign work of God. God is sovereign in his work and he's sovereign in his timing. So I'm sure Jesus could have walked by that man. And this is what I picture. He walks by the man, he's like, not today, but in the future, Peter and John are going to heal you. That's, I mean, obviously what I'm saying. But you know what I mean? Like you have to realize that sometimes healing doesn't happen. So now the day has come. Now this guy seeing Peter and John about to go into the, the temple, he's asking for alms, he's asking for money. And he's not really looking for a miracle. He hasn't asked for healing. Um, he's not saying anything about faith in a miracle. He just wants a few coins. So it says, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asked for alms and fixing his eyes on him with John and Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something, right? They talked to him. He's probably like, you know, waiting to receive something. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Where's the power? Can you boast about, you can boast all you want about money and about wealth, but it's interesting that the power isn't in the wealth. It's not in the silver and gold. Peter says he doesn't have any silver or gold, but he does, what he does have, he will give. And Peter exercises the name of Jesus. Where the power is. The power is in the name of Jesus. And then notice this. This is an important part to me. Peter took him by the right hand and lifted him up. I would say that's faith, right? Anybody can say to someone, be healed, and anyone can pray, and I recommend that you do, 
but to actually be in a public place and take someone's hand who is unable to walk, who's never walked, who has no muscle strength whatsoever, and just pull them up is an act of faith. Peter had faith, and the lame man's bones were strengthened. So verse 8. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Can you imagine it? Of course you would be. He's like jumping up and down and not falling, right? He's leaping and walking, but what does it say? Praising God. He didn't forget to praise God, because in the book of Luke, Jesus healed those 10 lepers, and only one of the 10 came back and thanked him. And Jesus is like, hey, didn't I heal 10 people? Where are the other nine? Sometimes we're all about the gift and not about the giver of the gift. We must always be thankful. We must always return thanksgiving and praise, not just walking and leaping and being excited, but giving God all the glory. Because it's so easy, I don't know if you've ever seen a miracle, like something this crazy happen in front of you. It's so easy to get swept up in the moment, in the spectacular, right, by this amazing thing that just happened. But we need to be careful, because we need to be responding to what it actually signifies. And that's the power and the grace of God. And all the people saw him walking and praising. So I read an interesting article about prayer habits. Well, I guess it was kind of a sad article, to be honest. And most Christians pray, but in this article, it said that most pray prayers of personal petition. So I need, I must have, I want. They said that most pray in this superficial manner. They, don't, they rarely have prayers of petition or um, thanksgiving or praise or honor or even forgiveness. But not this man. See, he's praising God, and it's even noted twice. Then it says, all the people saw him walking and praising. We can't forget to pray that way. We cannot. We can't forget to let those around us know who gets the glory. And worship team, you can come up. And then our last verse, verse 10. Told you we'd get there. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened. Now that's a miracle. Leaping and praising to God, because he was the one. He was the one everyone knew that laid there every single day. He was the lame man that's now healed. They're all witnessing that. That's a miracle. So now the worship team's going to come up, and we're going to wrap up here. So what do I want you to remember from today? Because there's lots here. The early church was a learning, a loving, a worshiping, and a missional church. They worshiped God daily on a continuing basis. They learned the word together while praising God and sharing meals with one another. It was God's desire for the early church and for ours today that we share our lives with one another. And I think right now in this world, that's never been more obvious, right? But also to share the gospel everywhere to everyone. So church, we've seen where it started. We've seen what the gift of the Holy Spirit can do in the life of a believer and the life of a church. 
We've seen where the apostles started, where the early believers started, and they deserve to be honored for that. We've honored our past, and now we've got to embrace our future, the future of the church, the future of the neighborhood church. And my hope is that we are at the neighborhood church, a learning church, a loving church, a worshiping church, a missional church, a miracle-seeing church. These were normal people full of different life experiences and different circumstances, failures, heartache, all different types of people. And that's what's so cool, how his apostles were all so different. It's amazing what the Holy Spirit can empower us to do. We need to lean into that. We need to draw near to Jesus daily. So we're gonna take some time right now to respond to the Holy Spirit and to respond to what he's saying to you. Maybe the Spirit will put someone on your heart that you need to speak to. Maybe you need to respond to this message, to, to his word, to his teaching. Maybe you need to respond in thankfulness and prayer. And then Pastor John's gonna lead us and we're gonna share the Lord's Supper together as a form of worship. And then of course we will be sent into our everyday lives. But I pray this week that you're on a mission to share the love and to share the wonders and share the science of Jesus. Because church, we're a good church and we're better together. Just remember, you can do things quickly on your own, but together we can go far. So let's stand and let's take some time to respond. God bless you. We are so thankful that you've listened in to the Neighborhood Church Podcast. If you have questions or comments about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you go to the podcast description and follow the link to get in touch with us. Everything we do would not be possible without your generosity. If you would like to give, check out that same link in the podcast description. If you have enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.